Hi there, I'm Chris Natsume. The internet knows me as Nine Squirrels. This is the People Make Things podcast. We have a very different episode for you today. It is all about Nepal. We have an interview with my friend Jawant Gurung, who runs Crystal Mountain Treks, one of the best guiding companies in the country based in Kathmandu. We're also going to talk about his charity, Three Summits for Nepal, which builds schools for children in the Himalayan foothills. And we're going to talk a little bit about my time with the charity and my time up in the mountains. It's a very different uh, show for everyone today, but we're going to start it with some music from Nepal. I want to start the broadcast today with just giving a huge shout out to Bipul Chetri, who is the artist that you just heard a moment ago in the uh, the sort of opening music to the show. And we'll be having some more music from him later on in the show. Bipul Chetri is a wonderful artist from the Kachinjunga uh, region of the Himalayas, there where Darjeeling and uh, Nepal meet. Uh, he's if you go to any bar or or any any anywhere there are Nepalis, you are going to hear the music of people Chetri lately. He's just a huge sensation in the country, um, an amazing modern artist. And I wanted the show today to be about this sort of thing. I know a lot of people uh, want to talk about Nepal and they want to talk about oh I went and saw the mountains and they're so pretty or I saw these ancient temples and but but there's there's things going on in Nepal today that are modern and are new and interesting. And I wanted to share with you some of that today. And I thought introducing you to this music might be a really wonderful way to share some of what's happening in Nepal today that's really incredible. So I just want to give a huge shout out to them. I actually did contact uh, his management company before we did the podcast and they were they were actually very cool and let us use the music and I just want to I want to thank them for letting us do that and if anyone is into the music that you're hearing here in the show please by all means uh you can actually get his stuff over on iTunes um, you can you can go to his website and order CDs. I'll actually have in, uh, information in the info section of the podcast. And so by all means, if you're into this music, please go check him out and support this wonderful artist. And yeah, there's that. So back to Nepal. So here's the thing. Uh, Nepal has become this increasingly important part of my life recently, and I, I want to explain it to people. And so I'm putting this episode together uh, where I'm going to talk a little bit about Nepal, and then after I talk about Nepal, I'm going to have my friend Jawant come on. Jawant is actually a local Nepali who runs a trekking company out of Kathmandu, and he also runs a charity called Three Summits for Nepal that builds schools for girls and guy and you know young girls and guys in the foothills of the Himalayas. And so it's really good stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about all that later. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about my experience in Nepal. And I know, I know right now, like, at least 30, 40% of you are like, dude, it's going to be another one of those times that some hairy hippie is like, oh my God, I woke up, I saw the sunrise in the mountains, and you haven't seen God until... No, 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 I'm not going to be like that. Um, but I'm going to be a little bit like that. And the thing is, Nepal is one of those places that you just... You just can't really fully express. It's difficult. You have these moments in Nepal and you come back 
and they they just sit with you and you 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 try to express them to somebody and they remind me a lot of for for any of you who've who've done drugs actually and you got really stoned and then you you were not stoned and then the next day you tried to explain to somebody how funny something was that you and they're like that's not funny and you're like well yeah because you weren't stoned like the, the, Nepal is kind of like that without the being stoned I mean I guess you could get stoned in Nepal if you wanted to but I don't suggest it but there's that same experience of after you get back there's this unreal quality that of of what you just witnessed and what you just saw that you try to express to somebody and you can't because they haven't seen this thing that is so different. And I've got a hundred stories I could tell about this. I'm not going to tell a hundred. And I, I, I whittled it down to three very specific moments that happened to me on my last trip out to Nepal. And I'm going to, I'm going to walk through these three moments and try to explain in the best way I can what's so different about Nepal and, and what's so interesting there for me. And bear with me. I, I hope this works. I'm not sure if it will. But I'm going to jump right in. And, and I want to I start with the first moment that I had. And this was quite a few days into the trek. We were trekking up. We, we were doing this trek. I'm, I was there with the, the Three Summits folks. And we were going up to some of the schools that we had built or had worked on or supported and checking out those schools and bringing along uh, solar equipment so that they had a solar panel on the school and a big you know what looks like a big car battery and that would power some lights in the schools because they don't have power up there and without power well you don't get light in the school and you can't study after dark and for a lot of those kids up there because they were working in the fields when it's light and they have time to study at night but they can't study at night because they don't have power uh being able to study at night uh with Power is actually a pretty nice thing, and so uh, we were we were trying to provide these schools with that. And what's interesting was, as we 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 went up, we found out that uh, some of these villages, since we were there last time, have had power cables run to them. They actually have power, but because the schools can't afford to get hooked up to the whole system, uh, the schools don't have power. And so we were we were working to make sure that the, the schools had power and that sort of thing. So. Anyway, we go up to this 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 one tiny village called Yasang. And Yasang is on this there's two sort of main big routes that go to the north and the south base camps of Kanchenjunga. And those two big routes are pretty well-traveled paths. They have, you know, they've been taken care of. There's relatively large villages along them. But in between those two paths is another little path that connects them along sort of a, a deep uh, river valley and that deep high up the hills of that deep river valley on on this sort of ridge line uh walkway is this little tiny village of Yasang and I had been to Yasang 2 years ago we had built a school there 2 years ago and I was I was lucky enough to have been involved in building that school 2 years ago uh mostly I I I I dug a hole is what I what I ended up doing and I I would like to say that, you know, I went out there and helped build a school, but that's not really a true statement. I went out there and witnessed the building of a school, which has its importance. I mean, I was there to take pictures and, you know, the people who funded the building of the school, I could say, yeah, I was there. Here's the pictures of the school. It got built. I saw it. Um, But in terms of actually helping build the school, one of the things, and this is what I get to when I talk about Yasang, one of the things about Nepal is it's an incredibly humbling experience. And not humbling in the sense of, you know, oh my God, the the majesty and the grandeur of nature. No, humbling in the sense that you're useless up there. You're just absolutely useless. 
And the people up there are so much better attuned to what they're doing and better, I guess, qualified to live up there than you are. I mean, when I went up there two years ago and they were like, okay, help us build a school. And I'm like, great. I was a carpenter. You know, I was, I was actually a professional carpenter. I used to make money being a carpenter. And I was like, great. I can, I can help build something. Well, part one there's not much wood in a house in Nepal because they have a lot of trees up in those mountains. All the houses are built out of basically rocks and concrete steel rebar. And, I, you know, I'm, I don't know. So, all right, I'll build rocks, right? So, I, I, it doesn't seem too hard. I can put one rock on top of another. So, I line up with all the other folks in the village and, all right, let's put the rocks on. And I start putting rocks on and I realize that every time I put a rock on, someone's kind of quietly coming and taking my rock off and putting a new rock on. And I, I realize that I don't really know how to pile rocks because apparently there's some system by which they have to fit and they compress down in the right way and, and you have to... And, and I didn't, you know, and you think that, you know, that, that's got to be something that you can learn. And like, apparently that's not something you learn in five minutes. Apparently piling rocks is high science up in the foothills of the Himalayas. So, all right, they took me off rock duty and all right, well, uh, how about, how about the wood? You can, you know, we got to build the frame for the door and the frame for the windows that's built out of wood. So, you know, I know how to use power tools. Oh yeah, there's no power up here. So you don't, there's no power tools for you. And so if you want a piece of lumber, you have to like hike up the hill to where the trees are with a saw and cut down a tree and then haul the tree back down and then use like a plane and hand tools. And you you might as well be in the middle ages for what it takes to make a piece of wood up there. And I don't know how to do any of that. So, okay, you're not, sorry, white dude, you're not, you're not qualified to be on wood duty. So why don't you go get some rocks, right? That, that can't be, I mean, that's gotta be, I can carry rocks. How, how do you, how do you mess that up? How do you not carry a rock? Well, all right, I go down to where the pile of rocks are and all the people are there with a pile of rocks and I pick up one of the rocks and I carry that rock over to where it's supposed to go and they kind of look at me and throw that rock off the side of the cliff and and I realize that I, I didn't bring them the right rock. Apparently there are special kinds of rocks that look somewhat different than the other rocks and I, I don't know which rocks are good rocks or bad rocks so I can't even carry rocks. And I, God, I mean, how how frustrated am I that I, I can't even carry a, a rock properly? And I... I go back and I have this, they finally figured out that, okay, there's the guy sort of down the side of the, because the, the rock pile goes all the way down the side of this mountain. And it, I mean, way down. So, I mean, there's a guy that's, you know, a good five minute walk straight down this rock pile and he's finding the good rocks because we apparently used all the good rocks up here on the top of the rock pile. So he's got to get the good rocks from the bottom of the rock pile. And he passes those up to me and I walk them up the rock pile and hand them to the villagers who are taking them to where the rocks are getting used. And so, all right, this I can do. They're handing me the rock. I hand the rock to somebody else. Can't mess that up, right? And so I, I you know, carry this rock up and there's a, I think kid must have been seven, six or seven years old. And I, I have this rock and I think this is, this is a rock a seven or eight year old can carry. I, I hand this rock to the kid and he looks at me just like, what's wrong with you, dude? And he just drops the rock and he leans down, he picks up a rock that's like three times as big, puts it on his shoulder and walks that over. And I realize I've just insulted this kid because I gave him like a little tiny rock. And he's like, you know, dude, I'm a man. I'll carry a big size rock. And I was just like, wow, these people are, these people are, they're, they're just the toughest human beings I've ever met. So anyway, that was, that was all two years ago. The moment that I had in Yasang when I went out there this time. Same people, same villagers, wonderful people, just some of the nicest people you ever meet. And 
we were trying to figure out where we were going to go because we, we had planned on going further up this river path that was going to go down into the river and up through this kind of uh, pass. And apparently there'd been a big rock fall up there. And they were like, yeah, that's a little bit dangerous. And a little bit dangerous coming from a villager in this part of the world means don't even think about going there. You will die. Right. So we were like, all right, well, let's not let's not go down the little bit dangerous path. And so the alternative was to go up the ridge and down the other side of the ridge, which was a, a, a pretty uh, grueling crime for a for fat old white dude like me. For them, it's a you know walk up a hill. But for me, it's hard. And we were kind of plotting it out. And I had the, happened to have this map of the area. So I busted out my map of the area. And I said, you know, let's look at the path here on the map. And all of the sort of men of the village were suddenly very interested. And I realized that they had never seen a map of their village before. And and not because they hadn't seen maps. I mean, these, these, these were educated men. Some of them had cell phones and stuff. I mean, they, they know how the world works. But, but they had never, it had never occurred to them to look at a map of their neighborhood because they had grown up here and they knew it like the back of their hands. It didn't occur to them to draw a map of you know these, these river valleys any more than it would occur to you or me to draw a map of our living room. They were just like, well, why would you need this? It's, the, the paths are right. I know where everything... The, it's impossible for these guys to get lost there because this is where they grew up. And they, they, they were just absolutely intrigued with the idea that somebody would go through the time and the effort to make a map of their area. They, they thought it was absolutely amusing. And we, we had a good five or ten minutes where we all looked at the map. And, we, and, and I, I got to thinking about this and, and just thought, like, this is how different our lives are. This is how different things are here than what you know. These people have such a different experience and such a different skill set and such a different understanding of how the world works from you that that this map is amusing to them and I, I i know it sounds like a little stupid thing but it was just a really fun comical moment that that i i don't think you would get outside of nepal because it and it and and it's this feeling of like you're out there and in your mind you're having an adventure you know you're like this is so distant and so remote and i'm going to go back and tell all my friends about how you know far and distant i was and 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 for these guys this was just like home this is just where they are this is just life this is just how things are in their world and you forget that your adventure is someone else's life you know and it it brings you home to where you are and what's going on and that you know while you may think it's a, a real adventure to walk out here in the middle of nowhere where there's no light and there's no power there's no sewage there's no roads there's no you know radio stations there's, there's no anything these people live here and this is their this is the the children that grow up here grow up without power and without access to a library and without access to the internet or any of this stuff and that's going to really change their lives and you you begin to wake up to the idea that 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 things are very different up here than your experience and i know i know it's obvious you're like of course it's different i didn't need a fucking big old long podcast to tell me that yeah i know i know but it was it was one of these moments where it really came home and it was really true to you i want to talk about another moment and it was days later we had climbed a lot, and we'd had a really hard walk. And we had brought a couple of the villagers from Yasang with us. And these villagers from Yasang had come along with us because we had chosen to go on a bunch of much less traveled 
paths, paths that tourists don't usually go on, but they're paths that the 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 locals used to get to like the high pastures for their yaks and that sort of thing. And so the locals knew their way around up there, but but you know, my map didn't show these paths and you know, the the guides that we had with us, of course, they didn't know any of this because they'd never been on any of these paths before. So a couple of the villagers volunteered to come along with us and and I think it was in their interests because the the paths that we had decided to take would go up along this ridge and then back down again and then to this uh, big Hindu temple. And a couple of villagers, I guess, had always wanted to go to this Hindu temple because, you know, I guess they're they're into that and they thought it'd be good luck. And even better luck on the other side of the Hindu temple is one of the largest towns in the, the sort of valley. And I guess they have to go to that town every now and then anyway. So they were like, hey, you know, I was going to have to walk over there anyway, but now these guys will pay me some money to guide them to where I'm going anyway. So it worked out well for them. So anyway, we brought a couple of these villagers along with us and they were nice folks and helpful and carried some of our stuff. And it was a good time for everyone. And there was one guy that came with us that I didn't really get to know very well because he was one of the quietest men I ever met. And he was a yak herder. He was this... Uh, you know, a real live, honest to God, Nepali yak herder. And he had come up with us to take us along his path. Cause I guess this went right through where he brings his yaks uh, to the, the high pastures. And you have to understand how cold it is up here. It's the middle of winter, you know, it's, it's new year's Eve and just, it's like negative 20 at night Celsius. I mean, just absolutely bone shattering cold. And I'm, you know, I'm decked out. I got the long underwear and the the windproof pants and the the you know all the REIs for the fleece and the the under fleece and the the down jacket and the windbreaker over the down jacket and one of those little you know mask things that you wear to rob banks and and a hat over that. You know, I'm totally decked out, and I'm I'm still kind of cold, right? And this guy is sitting right across from me, and he's. He's wearing a pair of jeans and like a thin cotton army jacket. And that was it. Like nothing. Dude didn't even have a hat, right? He had a he had nothing to protect his head but the but his mullet. You know, that was it. He had a, he had a, he had a big power mullet and and a and a he didn't even have shoes. He was I'm not making this up. The dude was wearing flip-flops, like little flip-flop sandals. That's what he hiked these mountains in. I'm in, you know, big old hiking boots that I, you know, ankle support, two layers of socks and all that. He's got a pair of flip-flops cuz that's that's what this villager was comfortable in. And and it, and I don't even think it was that he couldn't afford shoes. I mean, don't don't think that he was so poor and he you know, he didn't he could have afforded socks. I know he could have afforded. He didn't want socks cuz he just his feet were just used to it. And he was just sitting there. It didn't seem to bug him very much that, that that's what he was up here in. And he's looking across the way at me. And he must I must seem like a like a Martian or a space alien to him, dressed in all the stuff that I am. Like why would what kind of why would you need all that? I mean, the other the other Nepali, I mean, let's be honest, the, the guides and stuff that we brought with us, they were in, you know, boots and coats and and you know, trekking gear. Uh, they weren't nearly as dudded up as I was. I don't. I think they. I think I'm a much bigger sissy than they are. But I mean, they had you know real live trekking gear on. But this guy was just like that's not that's not how he rolled. You know, he he didn't he didn't need or want any of that. And it was it was phenomenal. We were walking along, and I I remember realizing, you know, he was carrying some of our stuff, but he didn't really seem to when when he left the next day, he didn't have his stuff. 
right? And and I was really surprised by this because I, I was like, "Where's his bag? Where's his water bottle and stuff?" And they were like, "He doesn't. He doesn't really have any of that." I'm like, "What do you mean he doesn't have a water bottle? Who who goes in the mountains without a bottle of water?" And they're like, "Well, he knows where the water is, and when when he's thirsty, he drinks from where he knows the water is. He doesn't carry water with him." And I'm like, "That's the craziest thing I've ever heard." I mean, you would think he would at least have like a day pack with some water in it, but no, he doesn't even have a water bottle. The only thing that this dude had was one of those big old, you see in the movies, those big kukri knives that the, that the Gurkhas used to carry. I guess they still carry. Anyway, he had one of those and that was like, that's what he needed to like, and, and it was like a modern mountain man. The dude could just like wander into the Himalaya mountain. These aren't like some little pussy mountains. These are the Himalayas, the biggest mountains in the world. And he just goes into them with his flip flops and his big old knife, and he's good to go. And I just thought, this is the manliest man I have ever met. And and I thought to myself, this is why you go to Nepal, right? I mean, there's other pretty mountains in the world. The Alps are pretty. The Rocky Mountains are pretty. You can go to the North Cascades and see really, really beautiful mountains. But this dude is not in those mountains. If you want to meet this dude you got to go out to Nepal or somewhere like it. And for me, that's part of what's really fascinating about going to Nepal is that you're, you're going to be up around people that you're just, you're just not going to meet anyone like this anywhere ever. And it was just a fascinating thing. It was a fascinating thing to, to interact with this guy. And I remember we were coming after the temple. That was sort of the end of our trek. After the temple, we were going to come down into... This, this village on the other side, which is, you know, to them, the big city, which is, I, you know, I guess it's got like 10,000 people in it. You know, it's like, whoa, look at that enormous city. Uh, it's a big village, but it's sort of at the the base of this this valley. And, and it's sort of the main trading center for all of the yak herders and farmers that live up in the hills. And I had assumed part of the reason he was coming with us was because he wanted to go, you know, get his business done. But on the last day, he turned around and started hiking right back where we came from. And I, I asked Juwan, I was like, is that guy not going? He's like, no, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't like the big city. I'm like, it's, it's 10,000 people, it's not the big city. I would think every now and then you would get lonely and sad being up there with just you and the axe and you would want to go see some city. But nope, uh, he wasn't into it. I, like he... He'd seen, I think, being around, I think our, our whole group was like 15 people, and I think that was like way more people than he was cool with, and he was like, nope, I'm, I, I've had enough of people, and I'm going back up into the hills, just me and my big old knife, and the axe, and he was cool with that, and I thought, you don't see that every day, that's, that's a new thing, so that, that was experience too, um, I'll give you a third experience, and I, I have so many more that I wish I could tell you, but I'm, I don't want to take up that much time. And it was the it was the last night we were on the trail, and it was kind of a it was a bit of a melancholy moment for me. Um, I got up to go uh, go to bed, and on my way over to the tent, I was standing on this ridge, and I was looking down over the valley that we had gone up. And this is a valley that I had gone up two years ago, and when I had gone up it two years ago. I had stood on a different ridge and looked down at it, and it was just pitch black darkness. There was no light in it. And when I looked down this time, the valley was full of little tiny pinpricks of light. And these little tiny pinpricks of light were indicative of the uh, little solar lights that people had brought up where they had little solar panels that are attached to it, much like the ones that we had brought to the schools. Most houses now had one or two of those attached to it, which meant those houses had light at night. People could stay up and read. Um, people could stay up and work on their, their crafts. People could stay up and talk. 
Uh, evening was now not a time of darkness for this valley. And for many of them, actually, it wasn't even solar lights. It was real lights because as we had gone up this valley, we had seen that power cables were being drug up this valley and strung up the sides of these mountains so that these houses could now have power. And obviously, this is a good thing. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. These are people, I mean, think of what it's like to live without power. These are people that that really have wanted power for a long time, and now they have power again. Well, not again, they have power for the first time. And I thought, it's also kind of sad. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, we were in a village near this place, a place called Yampudin, a very beautiful village. It's sort of at the top of this pass, and it looks down over this other valley that's just absolutely beautiful. And I had been in Yampudin two years ago. And when I had been in Yampudin two years ago, we had a big celebration because, you know, we came in with a bunch of porters. It was a big, you know, they don't get a big group of 15, 20 people through there very often. Not, certainly not in this season. And they were just, you know, excited to have some people around. And so they threw kind of a big party and we made a big fire in the middle of the village. And they killed a goat and we ate goat and we drank a whole bunch of this moonshine called Rakshi. And we we had a big party. And, you know, a party in Nepal means we, you know, the drums came out and people played the drums and they sang and they danced. And we all got, and it was a great time. And I, one of these wonderful memories. And two years later, we were in Yampudin again. Uh, same people, same village. Uh not much had changed except there was power in Yampudin now. And the houses that we had been to before at night now all had lights. And with and, and these weren't little solar lights. These were real lights hooked up to, you know, an actual power grid. And the power grid was enough to support televisions and cell phones. People people now everyone had a cell phone up there now. And obviously this is a good thing for them. They can now connect to the rest of the world and, and they can now see what's going on. But there's another side to this. And the other side to it is, what was life like for a 12-year-old up here even two years ago when they didn't have power? When they didn't have power, if you were a 12-year-old kid in that village, you had never seen anything that wasn't in that village. I mean, maybe you'd gone down the trail to one of the bigger cities and maybe you'd seen some stuff down there every now and then, but but largely, you had no understanding of what the world outside of Nepal looked like. None at all. Because you, you had no way of accessing it. There's no library up there. There were no books up there. You, they couldn't go look in the encyclopedia and learn about Germany and Spain. They had no idea what any of that was. But now they do. And this is a great thing. This is a wonderful thing. Now they can learn and they can have education and they can, they can have... They, I, I don't want to say this like it's a bad thing, but... The other side of it was when we were in Yampadan having that big party, the second time I was there, not everybody was there. A couple people were still up the hill because you know what? They had a TV up there and they were they were like, I don't want to go to the bonfire tonight. I'm going to stay up here and watch TV, which, you know, more power to them. I mean, watch your TV. But, you know, even down at the fire, a lot of the guys down there while we were talking, they were like, you know, hey, why don't you add me to your Facebook? You know, and, and that was, you know, in two years we had gone to, to this place where, you know, and of course, these were guys that had been to Kathmandu. I mean, even two years ago, these people knew what cell phones were and had, you know, probably had cell phones. I mean, it wasn't like this, this all just happened to these people in the last two years. But going back to that 12-year-old kid, this is all new for the 12-year-old kid because he hasn't been to Kathmandu. He hasn't been out of this valley. And two years ago, he didn't have to have it rubbed in his face that the rest of the world lived very differently than he does now. And now... 
he can turn on the TV in his house. And remember, he's still in this valley. He's still up in the middle of nowhere. His opportunity to get out of this place that he is, is you know, he's dirt poor. These people up here are very, very poor. They're substance farmers, right? But they, they've managed to scrape together the, the money for a, a, you know, little Chinese TV that they, you know, probably cost them 35, 40 bucks. And now they have this window in their house that looks out to the entire rest of the world. And they can see what London looks like in Hong Kong. They can see what New Delhi and, and you know, they, they have all of this in their face now. All of this that they will probably never have. All of this that they're going to have to work very hard if they ever want to get. They now have this whole world opened up to them that largely is something they'll only ever get to watch. And I wonder what that does to a society. What does it do to to these societies when you say... Yeah, you used to not know that all this stuff was out there. I mean, maybe you intellectually had heard about it, but now you get to sit every single night in front of a TV and look at a world that probably you're not going to be a part of. That's a very different thing. Now, on the other side, the power and the things that are brought up to them are exactly the things that they need to someday be a part of that world if they if they choose to be a part of that world. The education that we're trying to help bring to with the with the schools and such, that's exactly what they need if they want to be a part of that. The the ticket out of substance farming on the side of a hill in the middle of nowhere in Nepal, the ticket out of that is exactly what what's happening it's having roads come up those valleys it's having power come up those valleys with the roads come come sewage systems and and water and uh, you know and heat i mean these are people that that, that there's no they, these are people that have gone their entire lives without ever having a hot shower people who've gone their entire lives where the nearest dentist was 3 days walk away People have gone their whole lives where the nearest real de- doctor was three days walk away. If you if you broke a leg, you just kind of had to deal with it. And now we're moving to a world where, you know, right down there at the bottom of the hill, there's a road and they can drive an ambulance up that road. They can drive a Jeep up that road and you take a ride into town and get your teeth fixed. I mean, this, this is what people want, right? And this is good stuff. And if you were there, you would want it too. And so that was the... That was the... The last night I was standing up on that ridge and I was looking out over all of those lights and and those lights that had not been there two years before and thinking, all of this is disappearing. This world, this thing. And and honestly, good riddance to it. You know, I mean, I don't want to sound like one of those people who's like, oh, this, this native way of life needs to be preserved. Screw that. If you don't want to live like that, they shouldn't have to live like that either, right? I mean, if you... If, if if you don't want to live on the side of a you know featureless hill with no running water and no hot water and no power and no you know and backbreak nothing ahead of you but but a whole lifetime of backbreaking labor well they shouldn't have to live like that either and it's good that the world is changing it's good that they have television it's good they have cell phones it's good that they have electric light but it's also kind of sad to see it all go away. And it's sad to see that this this thing that I saw even two years ago in the very near future is just going to be something that people talk about to their kids and say, I can remember when it was like this. And for me, that's part of, part of what's amazing about t- Nepal is to see that transformation and to see that change. And to some very small level, uh, working with 
the charity that we work with to be part of that change. And hopefully it's a good change. And, you know, there'll, there'll be good parts and bad parts that come with it. But, but that was my last trip to Nepal. I've got all kinds of other experiences, and I'd love to tell people about it. But my 30 minutes is over. And I wanted to express all of that. I hope some of you have stuck in for that and, and found that entertaining or enjoyable. I'm now going to, uh, I'm not going to do a, a mid-roll today because this whole thing is basically one big uh, commercial for the Three Summits for Nepal charity. So I'm just going to shout out and say, hey, we're going to talk a lot about Three Summits. We're also going to talk a lot about trekking in Nepal. If anyone has any interest in trekking or how trekking companies work, uh, all of that is going to be in the interview I have with Jawant right on the other side of some more beautiful music from Bipul Chetri. Dorali dana ko sital hawa ma sara jangal nachu hai Timi bina ko jindo gani mo kasari nai to katun hai Rail ma chadi mo jani sutada chadi ya sabay ya samsaro Aune dina ko asa rakhi mo agi bade chukyo pari Juna feri mona lagyo I'm actually really excited to be interviewing uh, a really cool dude and actually a very good friend of mine. Uh, Juwant is a friend of mine from business school and he actually runs a trekking company in Nepal. But I'd actually rather him tell you a little bit about himself than me. So uh, Juwant, maybe you can introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are. Hi, um, I'm Juwant. Um, I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal. And uh, I attended business school 2004 to 2006. That's where I met Chris. I returned to Nepal uh, after business school uh, and uh, took over my family uh, trekking business, which is around 30 years ago, uh, 30 years old. Uh, it was started by my father. He's also considered one of the pioneers of trekking in Nepal. So, and uh, that's what I do: uh, run a trekking company in Nepal. Before you were taking over your father's business, I mean, did you have an interest in trekking? Did you have an interest in mountaineering or that sort of thing? Or yeah, I, I started trekking since I was a uh, very young kid. Uh, uh, I remember my first trek was uh, to a place uh, that was around uh, 16,000 feet. Uh, it's uh, called Langtang. And uh, I did that when I was eight or nine. And then I went to Everest Base Camp around uh, when I was 14 years old. So I started pretty for uh, for, any, uh, for a guy who was born in the city. So. So you, you, I mean, but you're not, you're not, I, th- I think some people are wondering, like, are you, are you like from the villages or you a Sherpa or something like that? But you're actually, no. uh, you're, you're a city guy, right? Yes, I'm a city guy. I was born in Kathmandu, born and raised in Kathmandu. And this is very, uh, not very normal for somebody from the city to actually go trekking at that young age. What was it because of your father's business? Was it because uh, of that experience or, you know, what, what, what drew you to the mountains? I think I was always interested in, uh, you know, the outdoors and uh, nature and all that stuff. So I know a lot of others uh, whose parents own trekking companies, but who didn't, who didn't go out when they were young. So at, at what point in your life did you start getting involved with the business of trekking? Not, not the actual, you know, going and trekking yourself, but the business of trekking with your father. How, how soon in your life did your father involve you in that business? Uh, I was 21 after I finished uh, my undergrad. Hmm. Um, I, I, when I came back to Nepal, uh, I, I, my, I did my undergrad in, in Delhi, India. 
And uh, so after that, I came to Nepal and started working with my father. I think a lot of people don't really understand what the trekking business is. Can you can you walk me through a little bit about like like what what is it that you you what is your business actually do? So there are two two types of trekking formats. One is the uh, lodge trekking where you go from uh, village to village and sleep in local lodges. And the other is uh, a camping trek where you sleep in tents and eat uh, meals prepared by kitchen crew. And uh, there, there you, you'd go to places that uh, don't have villages, so you'd have to camp out in the wild. And so what, what we do is we organize both, both types of treks. We provide the staff. We do all the planning. We provide the equipment. Yeah, that's what you do. So, so how how big is the business? How many people? When you when when we say Crystal Mountain Treks, how many how many people is Crystal Mountain Treks? Uh, right now around ten ten guides, uh, trekking guides, and uh, who are salaried. But uh, our um, then then we have a uh, staff that are on wage basis. So, right now we have a trip going, um, which is uh, around fourteen people, fourteen Americans. Which has a, a, a crew of uh, around 40, 40 people. So there are like 25 porters, uh, kitchen staff, and all that. So, so that that's like more than two people per person. So like one one American requires two like two and a half Nepalis to make it through the mountains. That's that's the math. Um, about yes, yes, about. Why do 14 Americans require 40 Nepalis to make it through the mountains? What 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 are these people doing? What what is the so, um, so the, the staff include porters, kitchen boys, uh, assistant guides, a cook, and a, and a, and a, and a guide, a, a lead guide, right? Yeah. So, uh, so for around, uh, every, uh, every trekker, you, you need, uh, um, at least two porters. So, uh, that, that porter is carrying the, the trekker's gear, uh, personal gear. Like, uh, clothing and everything. Plus, uh, the tents and food and, uh, kitchen equipment. So, um, and in Nepal, when you trek in Nepal, uh, people do not, uh, there are very few people actually backpack like in the US where they're carrying, you know, 100 pound, uh, gear. It's not easy in, in Nepal because, uh, because just because of the terrain and also because, uh, of the altitude. If you want to enjoy, Trekking in Nepal, you don't you don't backpack here. Yeah, I can I can tell you when I went out, I you know we didn't see a whole lot of trekkers, but it seemed like the, the the what you're talking about seemed to be pretty standard. It didn't seem like a lot of people who weren't raised in those hills actually could you know survive bringing so much stuff up in those hills. It seemed like you know, even with my little day pack, I remember it being a lot of work. And even mountaineers, uh, even those uh, the the you know highly skilled mountaineers that come to Nepal to do expeditions of Everest. When they hike to the Everest base camp, they just carry a small pack because they don't want to wear themselves out, you know, carrying a big pack with all the gear. The other thing I didn't really realize, and when you're when you're there, it kind of makes sense to you because you, you say, okay, well, I need a porter to carry my stuff. But then, you know, the porter has stuff, right? And, you know, somebody's got to carry my food, but the people who carry the food also need food. And you have to, you know, and so once you start adding in all the porters, then you've got, okay, well, now I need porters to carry the stuff for the porters. And it, you know, it's... You don't think about, you know, because everyone has to be self-sufficient up there. The, you know, once you start adding in people, all of those people require more stuff, and they require a tent, and they require, you know. So suddenly, I I remember when I went uh, on my first trek in Nepal, uh, there was one guy that that basically, you know, I looked in his his big huge basket of stuff, and he was largely carrying alcohol for the staff. <laughs> 
So, you know, you forget that, you know, these guys, that, that, you know, they require a bunch of stuff, too. So it, the, the, the numbers get pretty yeah. big. So tell me a little bit about these guys. I mean, I one of one of the most fascinating parts for me when I was in Nepal was was, you know, talking to the, the porters and the guides and the people we were trekking with. Where do these guys come from? What what are their lives like? So um, the porters, almost all the porters actually come from the villages. So they they uh, they are um, usually they are uh, farmers back in the villages, and then uh, to earn some hard cash, they come uh, do some portering. But, I mean, in their lives as farmers, they're pretty used to carrying heavy stuff around mountains. I mean, that's kind of what they do back home anyway, right? Yes, once you live in the hills, you start carrying a load on your back uh, from the age of, you know, four or five. So there's no going around it. There are no vehicles that will take, uh, you know, your, your stuff from A to B. So you'd have to carry it. Yeah, I can remember when we were up there seeing, you know, 12-year-old kids with, you know, what must have been, you know, 20 kilograms or more of firewood in a basket on their back. And they, they just seem to think that that was normal up there. Things are changing a little slowly. Uh, there are a lot of places where you saw that, you know, uh, on the track, the, the roads, the jeep tracks yeah. are slowly coming in. But, but, no, it's still going to take a long just because of the terrain. Well, I mean, but even, you know, even in the towns that we went to where there were Jeep tracks, the Jeep track was sort of down at the bottom of the valley and then everybody lived, you know, it's it's almost impossible to understand until you're there how steep the slopes are. And and yes. the, the way that those slopes are terraced, there are people that live, you know, there, there's a road and the road is only, you know, half a kilometer away as the crow flies, but it's also, you know, 1,500 meters down, right? Uh, and so to get, you know, just from your house to the road and back... Is this this mm -hmm. you know huge climb of a kilometer or a half up and you know straight up and down and they're you know they're never going to build yeah. a road up that that's there's no road that could ever do that so there's still going to have to be people who are used to hiking that yeah yeah going a little bit more you know one again one of the things that was really fascinating for me when I was in Nepal was was looking at the state of the villages and things and we're going to talk a little bit about your charity here in a little bit um, but before mm -hmm. we talk about that I want to get for people who are listening sort of a better understanding of what life is like in the villages in Nepal, because it's, it's very difficult to understand unless you've been there. Um, so, mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe a good vehicle to do that by would be to talk about the porters and the guides, because they're coming from those villages. What what are their lives actually like, um, sort of in a day-to-day -day basis? What what do they do? Where do they get their money? What What does a day in the life of a Nepali villager look like? Well, <laughs> that's a uh, you know, very uh, broad topic, I think. But uh, usually, uh, well, let, 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 let's uh, start by talking about uh, water, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, like I said, they're mostly sustenance farmers. They only produce, you know, the, you know, the, the hills are, you know, so hard to um, grow crops in uh, because of all terraced hills and, you know, you can only grow enough to uh, feed yourself. Not even enough to feed yourself. You'd have to work uh, uh, and do something else besides uh, farming to actually provide enough, uh, you know, uh, make enough to eat for the whole year. And also, like, uh, if you have to send a kid to school or if you, um, uh, if, if someone in the family gets sick, you need cash for that. So did I answer your question? Yeah, so when you say they need cash, how are they usually getting, obviously some of them are getting cash working as, as porters for, for, you know, you guys or other guide companies. How, how else can you can you get a cash economy in these hills where they're largely farmers? So, yes, these farmers um, now nowadays, uh, as, a, as a, uh, yeah, a lot of them go abroad to Malaysia, to Middle East, and uh, and uh, other countries uh, to work as cheap labor, unskilled labor. 
and uh, that uh, that remittance is one um, foreign exchange earner for Nepal right now. So. Yeah, I, th- I think I read that that uh, like the it was the number one or the number two part of the Nepal economy was actually remitted uh, labor wages. It is not. It's it number one. The yeah, I mean, but I mean, these these lives when they go overseas, and I mean, are those are those good jobs? Are they are they happy to take those jobs? Is that is that a good thing? No. Uh, well, some people, if they're lucky, get good jobs, but most of them. You, you've probably read about, uh, you know, the, the mistreatment of Nepalese in in uh, in Qatar, where they're preparing the stadium for the World Cup. Yeah, there's some pretty terrible stories about that. It's some 20-year-olds die of heart attack, which is quite, you know, uh, weird. And then you, you, if you go to the airport uh, in Kathmandu, international airport in Kathmandu, every day there's a coffin, you know, oh. bringing a dead boy back home, so... Yeah, and the, and the thing you know, the, what amazes me is you know, I've I've hiked with these guys, and I, I can say flat out, I've been a lot of different countries. The toughest human beings I have ever met in my life are in the villages of Nepal. I mean, just tough as nails human beings. And to think what must what what kind of life do they have to have in Qatar that it would kill them? Like, how hard do you have to work in Nepali before that happens? It it must be some some pretty rough labor. Is the only thing I can think. I think most of them, I think, uh, die because of uh, the heat. Heat. Ah, uh, yeah. Work in the midday sun and all that, and uh, they don't have proper, uh, you know, um, facilities, I guess. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, because we're going to talk about the charity in a minute. Tell me a little bit about the state of education up in the valleys. What, what, how? If, if I'm a, if I'm just a sort of average farmer in a, in a small, a small village, let's say like uh, uh, Tapotok, uh, which was one of the villages mm-hmm. we went past on our, our trek. What what are my educational opportunities? Where am I going to school? What time do I, you know, what, you know, what what year do I start school? And then, you know, what time, how much time a day do I get to go to school? Tell me a little bit about that. So uh, if you were, uh, if you're a villager from way up in the villages, uh, you have to, you you not only have to go to school, but you'd have to help your family with the you know the daily chores. So you really don't have time. Um, what, what you learn in school, you really don't have time to actually do your homework and revise and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and 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 at home, your parents are uneducated, so they won't be able to help you with schoolwork. You know, and when you go to school, the the school, uh, like if it's a uh, big school, there are the the teacher to student ratio is so huge that you're really not learning much. So to give you a good example uh, is um, Maya Gurung. Um, she's the girl that uh, our organization, uh, you know, rescued from a village in Gorkha. Yeah, yeah. And uh, during the earthquake. So she was uh, attending the fifth grade in, in, in the village. But when I brought her to Kathmandu, she started in, in, in nursery. She had to go start all over again from nursery. So now she's in uh, kindergarten two. So uh, and next year she's going to be in uh, class one, but she's already 11 years old. So. But the education up in the valley where she was was so poor that when they, she came to Kathmandu, she just wasn't capable of keeping up with kids her own age. And also, all the all the schools in the villages are government-run institutions. So, whereas in Kathmandu you have a lot of private schools which are actually world-class. So I mean, what I I, I guess the the obvious answer to why the schools are so poor up there is they just don't have the tax revenue or or the the local support to fund good teachers or to fund the infrastructure. Recently, our actually tax revenue has gone up a lot. 
but I just think uh, the and and we we get a lot of help from uh, other other countries in our education sector as well uh, that that help us through the government, you know. But but it's, uh, I guess it's just the uh, the policymakers and I think it'll take time before um, you know something positive comes out. So um, yeah, one of the things that I was really surprised by when I was in Kathmandu is there there were quite a few foreigners, and maybe it was because I was hanging out with you and you know a lot of foreigners. But w- almost every foreigner I talked to, I would say maybe eighty percent or more, I asked you know what are you doing in Nepal? Oh, I work for an NGO. Then there there was just such a, a foreign presence of uh, people there doing NGO work, and and on one side you know it was really good to see, and you were like wow these guys are here and they're helping out and that's nice. But then there's another side of it where you're like, well, why isn't the Nepali government doing all this work? You know, why why do you need a whole bunch of foreigners to come in to do this? So there's always that kind of feeling, that, yeah. that, that difference between you're happy to see that people are helping, and on the other side, you're like, well, but why do they need help? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And also, you know, when, when in a country funds a project, they bring in a lot of their own, um, you know, citizens. Yeah. To, that provides employment for them, and also I think it's... Easier to work with them, so stuff like that. And, and you know, to give the credit, they they do have more uh, skills than uh, Nepaliwood, so on, a, on average. So. Well, it's it's always sort of the the difficulty when you start talking about uh, charity, especially large organization charity, of you know, okay, people want to do good and they want to give money and they want to help out, but. Sometimes you run into the situation where where people can say, well, okay, I guess we don't have to fund that anymore because you know there's some NGO or there's some extra organization that's funding that for us. So I guess I guess we can stop putting money into it because someone else will take care of it, or you know we don't have to develop those skills because there's somebody else who's going to come in and take care of that for you. So there's always that that line that you have to follow with a charity of of making sure that you're trying to hire locally and you're trying to build locally and you're trying to build experience locally so that when you finally do pull that money out, there's there's something left. It's it's an interesting thing that I ran into. So I, I wanted to talk um, a little bit about, so you're, you're running this this uh, trekking company and, and you know, you're living in Nepal and you go to business school at UW and you start this charity, the Three Summits for Nepal charity. And I, w- I was hoping you could tell me sort of the background and the history. How did you get started with that? What Tell me how this charity started. So I'd, I'd seen those, you know, Climb for Clean Air charities and all that, that did uh, Rainier and, and uh, you know, had, had had the participants raise an X amount of money. So And I always wanted to climb Rainier. And I knew that if I climb Rainier, you know, why not uh, take other people with me and make, you know, uh, raise some funds at, at the same time. Or Nepal, so um, that's basically how I uh, how, how how it got started. So. so what what year was this when you did this? Um, started in the first climb we did was in 2006, where uh, most of the participants were all um, students at the UW, and and they they'd been talking to me about you know that they wanted to climb Rainier and um, it would be cool to climb together and all that. So. So you you did the first climb and you raised some money. What what prompted you to to keep doing it? Because you you've done climbs almost every year since then, and you've been raising money. You know, you this charity's grown since 2006. Uh, can you can you tell me a little bit about how it grew from hey I want to climb Mount Rainier and you know I'll raise some money and give it to charity to you actually registering a real charity and running a charity in Nepal? Yes. Uh, so yeah, when we when we first started, I thought I was just going to do it for like a couple of years or, or you know. Because it got so much traction and, and interest, uh, I just kept doing it. 
and uh, and uh, for the we we hadn't registered. Uh, you know, we were working through an I was three in the U.S. Um, and when we first started, we were donating most of our money to a, a orphanage that actually was a 501c3 in the U.S. itself. So, um, yeah, but and after the earthquake hit and, uh, you know, so many people actually um, you know, reached out to us and donated so much money, uh, it became difficult to uh, run and just as an informal organization. So that's when we registered ourselves. So tell me about the earthquake. You were, you were, uh, for those who don't know, I, th- I think most people know, but you, you'd be surprised how many people don't know. Um, there were a couple of years ago, there was an enormous earthquake in Nepal and it did just shocking amounts of damage. And it was quickly followed, uh, by sort of a political, uh, thing where there was a, a shortage of, for, for various political reasons that I, I don't want to get into in too much detail. Uh, there was a, a gas shortage in Nepal, and so there was a summer that was sort of hit by the the double whammy of a, a petrol shortage and the destruction of an earthquake. Where, where were you when all this happened? Well, when the earthquake first hit, I was trekking in the Annapurna region. I was trekking with uh, my staff, where people actually that uh, the village that was in the epicenter of the earthquake. My staff were were, were my staff, so. Once the check finished, I sent them home to assess the damage. And when I heard about the destruction, I was pretty, you know, um, I, I needed, I, I, I thought to myself that I needed to do something for them. So, so uh, tell, tell me about, I mean, what was it, where, where you were, did you actually feel the earthquake? Was it was it a, a thing there? Yeah, well, it's just something I'd never experienced in my whole life, the scariest moment of my life, I guess. Uh, it was an, uh, a, a whole minute of you know, the earth's shaking very vigorously and uh, rocks tumbling down, uh, thankfully not on us. <laughs> so, yeah. But, I mean, how much that communication with the rest of the world did you have? Were you were you capable of quickly kind of understanding? I mean, did you know at that time how bad the earthquake was or where it had been? No, no, we didn't. Uh, I, I didn't expect it because we'd never, I'd never experienced anything in my life like that. And, uh, you know, immediately I tried to call home but all the phone lines were you know busy so the, there was a log jam i guess um but uh, but when i finally did get in touch uh, and actually the radio uh, we heard a lot of the destruction in Kathmandu mm. in the, uh, on the radio yeah, tell me tell, for, for people because there's probably people who are listening to this who don't don't remember this or didn't you know that the nepal wasn't real big on their radar how how bad was Kathmandu hit well in terms of uh, well Kathmandu was Quite uh, away from uh, the the center, so it it could have been a lot worse if the epicenter was closer to Kathmandu, mm-hmm. because Kathmandu has a lot of big buildings that are not built, uh, built according to you know building standards, you know very low building standards. So, uh, but uh, we got away. I think uh, you know we, we were spared a lot, but still, uh, when I first uh, when I returned to Kathmandu after the earthquake, there were so many buildings that had you know just fallen. And uh, people just crushed in the building. So yeah, one of the things that you know, I, I went back to Nepal just uh, you know obviously just last month, and when I was there, uh, Durbar Square, which was you know the it's maybe the most famous scenic attraction in the center of of Kathmandu. If you ever watch anything about Nepal, they're going to show you pictures of Durbar Square. This is the the sort of uh, historic old town. 
and there were some, you know, uh, very, very old buildings, I guess multiple hundreds of years old buildings that were just absolutely flattened by the earthquake that are still being rebuilt. And there was one one place, uh, I forget exactly which temple it is, you'll know which one it was, but it, it's the one that's absolutely completely destroyed down to the foundation. And I I have a picture of me standing in front of this, this, uh, this structure and to stand there in front of it and just see it be completely gone. Do you know the one I'm talking about, Juwant? The... It was the Kashmanda Temple, and that is from where the derived. But tell me more about, I mean, so the epicenter of the earthquake was was actually up, as you say, where a number of your staff actually lived and, and where their families were. Tell me about what it was like up there. So I think uh, after, the, after, a week of, uh, after a week after the big earthquake hit, there were... Like hundreds of aftershocks, some uh, up to six, uh, six to scale, you know. So, but after a week after the big earthquake hit, I I went to the to their village with the supplies. So we had to walk two days from the road. But uh, there was, you know, death and destruction everywhere. Um, you could you could smell the cows, uh, you know, the, the cattle that are uh, rotting and. One and in one place that uh, we had to walk on a trail where uh, they were not able to pull out the bodies of people that were crushed underneath. So it's pretty, you know. And uh, these villages that I'm talking to uh, through, uh, about uh, where we walked through, they were all literally all the houses were, uh, you know, destroyed. Uh, so, so I mean, what is the what is the government response to this? I mean, how much support did they have from their local government or the national government to rebuild? What what kind of I mean, because this this was now uh, what two and a half years ago. Um, mm-hmm. What what does this village what what do these villages look like now? How much has been rebuilt and and what has been the efforts to do that? Whatever has been re- uh, rebuilt is people you know taking their own initiative initiative and doing it by themselves. Recently, the government actually gave out, uh, has uh, promised uh, $3,000 for every home that was destroyed. And uh, recently, they gave out $500 each. Uh, that this is about, you know, two years after the big earthquake. So, so I mean, what did, what did people um, who didn't have the funds to rebuild and, you know, obviously they didn't have their $500 yet, what have they been doing for the last two years? I mean, it gets cold up there at night. So, I mean, what, what do yes. they do? They just live in, uh, you know, makeshift uh, homes, uh, shacks. So tell me a little bit. Now, obviously, three summits got involved here. Tell me a little bit about what you guys did to sort of help solve this. So in in the village uh, um, that I'm talking about, it's uh, called Singla that was in the epicenter. That's where my staff are from. We've been rebuilding homes of mostly of uh, families that cannot uh, afford to rebuild on the or don't have uh, or widows, you know, uh, don't have a meal in their family that will, uh, you know, that that can provide the muscle to build the homes. So uh, we've uh, helped rebuild um, around 40 homes already. So. so tell me a little bit about where you guys are getting the money. I mean, you, you obviously were doing uh, hikes up uh, Rainier and other mountains to, to raise money. What? But I, I think there was quite a lot of other money that came in after the earthquake. How are you? What, what is your what is your process for reaching out and trying to get donations and, and bringing money into the charity? The earthquake, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people reached out to us uh, after the earthquake. Uh, so uh, mostly friends and family and uh, 
um, my, my my clients that have checked with us uh, for many years, and also mostly um, you know uh, friends of uh, people that were associated with the three summits, like uh, your friends, uh, were very um, uh, you know generous. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, I, I know some of my family and some of my friends really helped out. So for any of you who are listening, who are those folks, um, uh, I hope this is helpful to you to you know know what happened to your money. Uh, but I guess I, you know one of the things I, I really think about Nepal is it's a it's a place that you don't really understand until you're there. And I think people who have been there uh, more than any you know, I've, I've been to a lot of countries, but more than any country, once you go to Nepal, it's sort of something that sticks with you and you think about it. And when something happens to Nepal, you feel like oh I should I should do something about that. Those were those are nice people, you know that it's it's you know I've been to a lot of places, but there's and I, I think maybe you you can you can verify, I bet a lot of the clients, the people who go trekking with you, are people that come back to Nepal time and time again, no? Yes, yes, they do. Uh, you know, I, m- most of the, uh, my clients are repeat customers, and uh, they tell me that, you know, they just uh, can't stay away for too long. Uh, and there's so much to see here, and the the, the, the people are, I guess, uh, our biggest pulling Point, no, it's uh, you know, we were talking earlier that the number one source of income for Nepal is uh, remitted labor. I believe number two is tourism, actually, yes. right? Yes, uh, and until five years ago, it was the number one source. Yeah, and and for and for good reason. There's 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 so much to see there, and there's there's just I mean, I Juwant and I we went to uh, this this ridge that we, you you remember Juwant? We're still fighting over what the name of the ridge is. The map had one name, and the the villagers told us it was something else. Uh, but it was this ridge, and you could, I, I, I stood there, and you remember, Joan, you and I stood there, and we looked out, and both of us were like, in our entire lives, we've never seen anything this beautiful. <laughs> and, and it was a, it, you, don't, you don't get a lot of moments like that in your life. You, it's, a, it's a very special moment, and I, 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 I'll, you know, that's going to live with me for the rest of my life. And there's very few places I've been that just continuously bombard you with, with just this amazing beauty and this amazing almost otherworldness uh, that, that you get in Nepal. So I could see why people would come back, and I could see why when when things go bad in Nepal, people feel like, wow, I should I should do something about that. I should I should get involved. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about charities, uh, and this is changing topics and changing gears a little bit. Uh, yeah. One thing that I run into when I start talking to people about, you know, the work that I do with, with Three Summits and telling people about your organization and all the good stuff we're doing there's always somebody who'll be like, are you sure that's legit? Are you <laughs> sure that they're cool? You know, because there, there, there are so many people that uh, I think get taken advantage of in Nepal and, and not just Nepal, uh, but in, in uh, developing countries where charity becomes uh, a source of corruption. And I wonder if you could tell me, A, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that takes place and then B, uh, you could tell us a little bit about how you make sure that you're you're not doing that, and how how do we how do we better if if it's not three summits, which obviously if you want to give money to charity, give money to three summits. But if you uh, if you're looking to give money in the developing world, whether it's Nepal or somewhere else like that, can you give me sort of a breakdown of of what to look for and how to contribute in a way that's better for the people in that country? So um, this has been a you know pretty uh, big issue, I guess, uh, anywhere in the world. Um, a few years ago, I read an article about how World Vision or some big organization, their administrative cost was, what, 50, 60, 
60 or even 70 percent of uh, the, the total donations, right? Yeah. So, uh, three summits, we, we ours is minimal, minimal. So um, I don't, I don't, or either I or anybody in my board does not pay pay ourselves, and uh, and I encourage people like you uh, from out, uh, you know. And um, to come to Nepal and see the work that's been put in, and so and I, I appreciate the fact that you come, you know, once every two years and see it for yourself. And uh, there are other people like Brad and Tanya who've seen it. So how do you make sure that the money that Three Summits is getting is being spent in the best way? How do you, how what's your thought process in figuring out how to spend money from the charity? I I, I roam, uh, you know, different parts of Kathmandu myself. And see see my uh, things myself, uh, and then decide where the mon- money can best be spent. So the first school that we built, I was on a con- on the Kanchanjunga trek. The, the earthquake, uh, we had an earthquake uh, in 2011. This was prior to the big earthquake, uh, and uh, I saw I saw many schools that were damaged there. And back then, because the big, this earthquake was way in the east, in the in the remote part of Nepal, nobody actually. Uh, Cared a lot about it, so that's uh, that's that's why I built the first school. This this was the one in Yampadin. Yes, the one in Yampadin. Yes, the the kid. Yeah, we. Uh, the school was actually a shack, so I thought, you know, why not build a school there? Yeah, it's actually a very nice school. I've been to that school twice, and uh, you know, it's a wonderful village. Uh, probably some of the most hospitable people I've ever met were in the, the village of uh, Yampadin, so it was uh, it was nice to go there and, and see that school, and it seems like it's it's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what what's your what's your plan looking forward? Um, what 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 is what does the future of Three Summits look like? What are you what are you going to be doing in the future with the charity? So um, I'm I'm slowly going to move away from building schools, but uh, I, uh, instead I'm going to focus more on Empowering the schools that we've already built. Um, uh, I want empowering to empowering in what sense? Uh, so uh, providing them better teachers, better materials, um, you know, and uh, helping with training the the locals, you know, so stuff like that. So how how many schools have actually been built through three summits? What how many schools do we have out there now? Uh, let's see. Um, we've we've already built six schools. Uh, currently, there's uh, one school being built in um, near Pokhara in, in Parvat district, and uh, we're, we've applied for permission to build in Gorpa district. So by this, the end of this year, we would have built eight, eight schools. So in these eight schools, what I mean for people who haven't been up to Nepal, how many how many kids can go to one of these schools? I mean, how many children are we talking about here? So. Uh, you know the numbers range anywhere from between 30 to over 200. So uh, it depends where where we're building schools. Where 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 did we have a school that's got 200 people? I don't remember that. So school. the one the one the one in Parbat has more than 200 actually. So uh, many! Wow. Yeah, but but we're only building uh, one section of the school. So. And and these are usually schools for much younger kids. We're talking primary, and, and yes. we're not talking secondary education, right? Yes. The schools that we build are for the primary primary education. 
So what are the what are the real challenges? So you know, I I've been up there. I've seen the schools. They're they're very nice schools. Um, what are the challenges that those schools are facing now in providing good education to the kids? The biggest biggest challenge is good teachers. That is the biggest challenge. So, where, where, I mean, where do the teachers from these schools come from now? Where, where do they get trained and where do they come from? Um, you know, most of the schools, uh, most of uh, the teachers are from the village, but they have minimal education. And, yeah, uh, I mean, ta- listening to you talk earlier, it sounded like the, the people in the village didn't really have a whole lot to, to offer in the way of education themselves. No. And, 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 uh, you know, the bigger schools, uh, where, uh, the teachers are employed by the government, um have good teachers but they're still not good enough so that is the biggest challenge uh, and so lo- looking forward the real focus of the the charity is going to be on you know uh funding better teachers and teacher training yes yes and because our 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 uh, schools are way up in the blocks you know they're the really good teachers not want to go and work there and live there so that is <laughs> They are pretty far out. That's true. I, I think uh, the the Yasang school that we worked on, I think, may be the furthest from civilization I've ever been in my life. Um, I believe it was it's like a plane ride to get to the landing strip to get to the the road. And it was about what a day and a half on a Jeep to get to where you start going up the trail and then a good solid while well, for for you know, uh, lame, fat, white dudes like me about three days hike in. I, I guess the villagers can do that hike from uh, Tapaljung to, to Yasang in a hard day, but there's no way in a million years I could do that in a day. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I remember when we were up there, it was always really, uh, I, I guess, disheartening for me because you would be like, okay, here's the trail and here's what we're going to do and here's our hiking. And, and these guys are going to meet up with us. And I'd look at the map and I'd say, but... But those guys are way over there, and you'd be like, "Well, yeah, they can do that in a day. You can't." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with with the Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's the worst part of it. You know, I'm I'm hiking up there with this little tiny day pack, and I'm sweating, and oh my God, this is so hard. And then you know, an hour later, the the guys come traipsing in, and they've all got thirty kilograms on their back, and they've walked twice as far as you, and they're like, "Oh, let me fix you dinner." And yeah. You're just about ready to pass out exhausted and they're they're just getting started with their job, you know. It's uh <laughs> yeah. honestly some of the toughest people I've ever met. Uh and it was it was hard for me. You know, I, we had this conversation when I was there because as a as an American, you're not really used to having people serve you as much mm-hmm. as you get served on a trek in Nepal. And you always you always have to like keep reminding yourself, I'm on vacation, but they're at work. You know, you have to tell yourself that over and over because you you get treated so well. And, you you know, everyone is like, you know, it, I, I always tell people you wake up in the morning, you know, and you're tired and frowsy and and you you think you had a hard day hiking yesterday. Of course, you weren't carrying, you know, 35 kilograms of stuff in a basket on your back, but you feel tired. And there's a little scratch at the, the flap of your tent. And there's a, a man there with a, with a little, you know a little platter with some hot tea that he got up, you know, an hour and a half before you to cook the tea. And, you know, good morning, sir. Here's your tea. And I, it's the most civilized camping I've ever done in my life. Um, yeah. So to put it into perspective, uh, the trekking, um, you know, system was first started by a British colonel uh, from the British Army. So 
you know, the British are used to doing this, you know, the sahibs. So I guess yeah. the format just stuck from then, you know. Yeah, I can I can remember the, one of the most amazing things uh, I, I ever heard. Uh, we were we were eating something, and this guy pulls out, you know, one of the one of the uh, it was a cook pulled out this big glass thing of uh, peanut butter, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Ooh, would you like some peanut butter?" And I'm like, "You brought that in a glass bottle? I mean, you know, you could have put the peanut butter in a plastic bottle or bought a plastic bottle of peanut butter." And he looked at me with a very confused look on his face, and he says, "But the the glass looks better." <laughs> and and this guy had hauled this you know this glass thing of you know I mean in a million years if you if you hang out with people who go hiking or backpacking you know you would never bring a, a glass anything you know yeah. but it looked it looked better at dinner if you served the peanut butter in a in a glass container it was just it was more civilized <laughs> and I just I sat there and shook my head for and, and the worst part of it was I didn't even want peanut butter you know it was like. <laughs> I almost felt like I needed to eat the peanut butter just because, you know, this dude hauled this glass thing of, you know, big, not a little thing, not a little mini peanut, but like a full-size jar of, you know, glass peanut butter. And I don't think anyone wanted peanut butter. I think he hauled that for like eight days worth of trekking just in case anybody wanted it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So... Anyway, um, we're we're reaching the end of our of our our interview here. I, I wanted to know is there is there anything else that uh, you'd like to let anyone know about uh, your your company or about the the charity? Obviously, I'm going to when we post this, I'm going to put a link, and that link will take you to the website of the charity. Where uh, obviously, if you're feeling interested in getting involved, whether that's uh, giving money to the charity or helping us raise money or learning more about the charity, we can certainly set you up with all that. Um, Juwan, is there anything else you'd like to, to yeah, let the folks well, know? Um, I guess this is my time to plug, you know, the charity, put a little plug for the charity. Uh, since, um, uh, I think a couple of years, I have not been able to go back to the U.S. and, uh, do my, uh, do the climbs and, uh, you know, the climbs really help with the fundraising. So all the fundraising that's happening right now is, uh, through word of mouth and, uh, you know, people, uh, your friends telling friends about the charity and, how the, about the work we've been doing and uh, stuff? So and and I'm I'm a little concerned that uh, we've uh, we've not been raising much money. Most of the money that we've been raising recently is just your uh, efforts, Chris, and a little bit of, of, from my friends. So uh, you know, if if, uh, if 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 you have money to give, uh, uh, please do help us. So. Yeah, I would. I would also add. I would be interested in. You know, obviously, a lot of uh, the people who gave to the charity will will probably be listening to this. Um, if anyone has any ideas of other ways that we could be raising money, I, I'd be very interested as well. You know, Jawant and I spent a lot of time when we were in Nepal recently talking about the charity and how we could uh, how we could give it a little bit more longevity. Um, how we could get people who were contributing on a yearly basis and how we could uh, we do that sort of thing. So. Uh, anyone who's got any ideas, um, uh, not just money, but uh, we're also accepting ideas. So anyone who's got any thoughts or anything, please share that. Uh, there'll be a whole forum and whatnot for all this later, so you're welcome to put all that information there. So anyway, that's uh, that's what we've got. Juwant, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. I hope this is going to be interesting for people who are interested in Nepal and trekking and charities and whatnot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you uh, you know, for involving me in this 
Oh, absolutely. I, you know, for for me, it's uh, you know, I always tell people that probably the thing that's brought me the most joy in the last few years of my life has been uh, working with the charity and going to Nepal and, and feeling like I'm doing something constructive. And so, you know, I'm I'm honored to be part of this, and I'm always happy that you include me. So, uh, thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks a lot. मनमा उठ्यो आज मेरो आनन्दको लहर हिजोको विपना आज भए छ सपना एकान्ची कति चाँडै बितेको यो जीवन पानी पर्यो सरर भिजुकाले बुङ सहर कालो कालो बादल चढी फर्की आयो असार लहै Again, that's all the time we have for the show today. For those of you who have made it this far, another shout-out to Bipul Chetri. If you've enjoyed the music in this show, please go support that wonderful artist from Nepal. His uh, stuff is available on iTunes and Amazon and wherever you can find music. I'll put links in the info for you to go to his stuff. For those of you who are interested or have any interest at all in going out to Nepal, I will have information on how to get in touch with Crystal Mountain Treks, which is Jawant's company. I can't recommend that company enough as a wonderful organization for setting up trips in Nepal. I've done two wonderful trips with them. They've been great trips. Um, just great people uh, stop the bottom. And for those of you who aren't interested in going to Nepal but who are interested in helping out the charity, there'll also be information in the info as well. But you can go check that out at 3summitsfornepal.com. That's three is in the number three, summitsfornepal.com. And you can get all the information there about what we do and how we do it and where you can donate and where you can get involved and help. So, thank you very much uh, for sort of letting me do this episode all about Nepal. We'll be back to the games and the free-to-plays and all the other, you know, uh, more modern stuff later. But I just wanted to share this with everybody. I hope this has been enjoyable, and we will see you on the next episode. कालो कालो बादल चढ़ी भर की आयो आसारों